This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit gbt.com to learn more. All right, Warriors, welcome to another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we are, um, we've been hitting it out of the park with these guests as of late, but this one's special. This one is not even a home run. This is, this is a grand slam. This is the, this is the whole enchilada. A legend. Unbelievable. We got Dr. Elliot Vichinsky with us, who is the godfather. He's, he is the sickle cell legend that we've been waiting for on this show. I've been talking about his manuscripts my whole career. Dr. Vichinsky, welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. It's really important to be with people who care about sickle cell disease. Actually, only as a united community will we be able to improve things for sickle cell people, uh, their families, and the at-risk community. So any piece I could do to help, I want to. Well, I mean, we have been just obviously huge huge fans of, of you of yours we 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 talk about your your contributions to the field all the time and really in this episode what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about who Elliot Vichinsky is how Elliot Vichinsky became Elliot Vichinsky and and we know that that story starts in Brooklyn but but I think that that story is going to be told better by you so tell us a little bit about how it all started well you know really I, I grew up in a large family in Initially in Brooklyn, my grandfather actually owned an old apartment building with three stories, and I had five uncles. My family, they all lived in the same building. It was a different world back then. I learned a lot being there. It was an immigrant community and there, that took care of itself. And it wasn't only the Jews who immigrated from after but it was other communities in their own culture. And uh, it was an enlightening period. I grew up with the understanding that social issues and that you are only as good as you give back to the community was a, something very important to my family, to um, uh, me, that um, participating and um, being aware of what others' needs are, are really important to the extent that my grandmother actually, uh, while I had five brothers, you know, during during the, um, I mean, five uncles, but during the other influenza flu, when my, it's interesting, my grandmother adopted, I didn't even know this at the time, three uh, homeless kids who, uh, you know, lost their parents into my family. And they were in their, their generations went in it for years. And I never even knew they were different, but it wow. kind of philosophy was very important to at least my understanding. And then as I went further, I grew up in the 60s and, and in the late 50s. And, you know, I, I realized this, the social injustices were really important to me. And I took I was active in those movements and um, went to University of Wisconsin and I understand then um, there were large movements or black strikes and but I, and the war was going on and I was trying to figure out in my life what to do. I love science. The, the more I, I saw around the world and at that time, the social importance was equally important. And somehow I thought that medicine, you know, was the calling that would integrate what I thought was my social um, obligation and uh, spiritual core with a scientific interest in things. And, and so I thought of medicine as really a higher calling, almost a, uh, a spiritual position, one that enables you to be driven by values and missions that are higher than the day-to-day -day struggles people have. So I saw medicine as critically important. My personal view, I, I almost as a spiritual leader or so that's how I got involved in it. And then when I went to medical school, you know, actually I was pushed into these academic adult arena kind of positions because I'm an ambitious person. But I, I, I met this woman, her name was Maria Falter. She was uh, a child during the Holocaust. And her father ran a medical school 
in um, uh, Europe, which was taken over and he was demoted and expelled and family were killed. And she was, became a teacher and a, hemo a pediatric hemonc physician. Another one named Maria Robinson and and in New York, they they let they they were really uh, these two older women particularly motivated about sickle cell, and they they published some of their early work about pneumococcus, uh, in work about E. coli sepsis um, from in sickle cell, but other things. So, as I was engaged in the academic rounds in internal medicine and, and trying, I thought I was actually going to be in a different field as I was being pushed. I, I somehow wanted, started to work with them in uh, an outreach clinics in parts of Brooklyn um, that had a significant sickle cell communities. And, and um, I identified, uh, you know, they would get down on their knees and play. And it was it really switched my field from adult medicine, which is into pediatrics. And it opened up a door of the combination of, uh, in, of injustice and um, and science, um, I saw these kids die very early of, of pneumococcal sepsis and uh, malnourished and um, other issues It just, they made, these two women made it, and particularly Maria Falter really changed my, my life's career into that. Wow, so this was like SUNY Downstate Medical School, early 70s. Yes, well, I was always had those principles, but she was able to, put them into a visual for me about what it really is about. And uh, she did some research, but we became very close friends. She was at least 50 years older. Um, we became joined uh, over my career. And actually, uh, she knit me this wonderful sweater. And, you know, I, I learned about how the Nazis, uh, you know, uh, affected her community and and when they moved and actually in her embracing the sickle cell and the populations in Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuy and going out, it was just, it, it, what, for where I was, it, it was a, it gave me a role model. Everyone wants a role model to, you know, someone to follow up. So that was a real inspiration. And I left there to, um, I initially thought of going into, you know, into a special, I had, at one point my brain was driven by you know, in science, I had this other part and I got driven by social service. So initially I thought maybe I'll do, I should go out in the community and become a family practice person. And I, I went to work on an Indian reservation, the Pima Papago Reservation in uh, Arizona, which was outside of Sacaton, which is not far from uh, Scottsdale and Phoenix. And I was alone. It was one of those all night suturing and everything and, and working. And I learned a lot, um, and, but it, it was impressive, the kind of a incredible, um, just basically destruction of the Pima culture. These were incredibly productive, ancient uh, uh, people who built these incredible um, irrigation systems to and uh, really artists. And uh, during the 50s, the water was diverted off their reservations. Their whole system was uprooted in their culture. The Indian experience, which my wife actually came with me, and she's a, is a person who had a background in race and sex discrimination as, a le as an attorney worked on the reservation. So let's back up a little bit. You, so your wife is a new character in the story. You guys met in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Okay, so you met in Wisconsin. I will be married this summer, 50 years. Wow. We are both politically active people and we took a car. I was the only one with a car at the University of Wisconsin. And the, after the Democratic demonstrations and the rioting that occurred in- This 19 is 68 in Chicago? Yeah, I, I went with my car filled. It's very close to- um, to the uh, hearing uh, that was going on with the Hoffman judge and the Chicago 7 to get in. So I was online with her to go into the hearings. They had certain spaces and I was waiting. It was freezing. And it was the time we got there it was really late. It was really something. It was really cold. I finally got in. And um, just when we're at the front, it, you know, the Hoffman made some outrageous statement. Then this young woman who was younger than me uh, 
both of us in unison uh, made a, a social statement out loud and we were thrown out. So we had this wait for everyone else. And so we spent the day together and on the way home, I drove back. She stayed at my place and, and we've been together since that night. Wow. And so that's how I met her. We moved from place in part to address issues that were, we both could um, uh, continue our career. So that's how I met her. And we've been active together in those issues. I could go, go easily, easily go on what happened with her own interests. So anyway, I went to University of Wisconsin and it was an interesting time. Uh, you know, I was out striking and active in the social movement and there were conflicts within that movement that were problematic for me. And it even pushed me further in medicine. I, I was trying at one point to go to Cuba and the Benson Ramos groups, but when they found out I had a commitment to medicine, I was interviewed actually at the time made a look with a light and think that I was sort of said that, you know, medicine is, uh, your plans are bourgeois and that they are because you have to be focused on today, not the future, you know, and, uh, it, it, it created some conflicts for me that had me further move in to um, uh, areas I was, you know. I realized earlier that one has to be driven by their own moral anchor, but you, you're, the role models you seek out are not the people that you should be. You should seek out from each of those people the strengths they have and, and not the weaknesses and be smart enough to understand that each person is complicated and extract the part that can make you better. That is um, what we did and, uh, when I was there. Anyway, so I landed up um, from Wisconsin and schooling. You know, we both landed up for many reasons at the University of Washington and, at, in, and in their children's program, her in law school and me and met in uh, my residency. And I immediately got involved in, in sickle work. Um, I worked with the state actively to set up uh, and I, uh, a sickle cell newborn screening and trade counseling program. This was as a resident. Uh, so I got a, I got a small grant on my own as a resident and I recruited a uh, exceptional student to run the office, you know, uh, and we ad advocated for setting up newborn screening. And I, it was at that time I met the, um, uh, you know, one of my world uh, special people from uh, in the sickle cell world, um, you know, and, and uh, who helped motivate me uh, very deal. And um, I tried to work with the state and set up newborn screening in the program as a resident. And I remember because Seattle was a very strong metabolic program and we're one of those leaders in newborn metabolic diseases. And I had to go before a group to um, validate that sickle cell screening should be done. They just could not get the point that if I wasn't able to give sickle cell people, you know, like a thyroid supplement, if they were missing thyroid or some rare uh, PKU, like a, a bullet, then there was newborn screening was ridiculous. We're not doing it. So that this was for the state program and they support it. And I, I got involved in a heavy argument with the head of the whole program. So I needed to be sophisticated enough to justify for them you know, the benefits of newborn screening when you don't have a cure. And this was long before penicillin prophylaxis. Yes, it was way before penicillin. And, you know, I went along working with this group and we did get, I got involved in traits, actually interesting and important people to, about trait. And uh, the, the, and I learned a lot about the negative side of trait in that the community, if they're not educated, I mean, if the providers don't know anything that meaningful and how to communicate follow-up of people with traits suggested they were hurt by limited uh, trait counseling. And that actually, because it wasn't done correctly, many families um, left trait counseling believing their child's future illnesses and documented this in which they got colds and colds were caused by the sickle trait. It really had an issue for me. So I knew that counseling had to be important and that and, and I, um, that was really important to me to learn. And it, later on in my life, it, 
it helped me identify, and I, you'll hear I became very close with Charles Witten, who uh, was a leader in sickle cell, who really had his own belief system. And uh, I learned a lot because we overlapped on newborn screening-ish interests over the years. So after I went, so I went to University of Washington, and believe it or not, my career interest initially were to be an oncology BMT program, which was a for many reasons, but when I was doing my own work, which I thought was social and other in sickle cell at the same time, and I started collecting, they didn't have a sickle cell program. And frankly, the ERs and stuff, sickle cell was pretty much ignored in that system. I don't even want to repeat the kind of um, lack of services. It was like a very unfortunate and it wasn't unique to that program. So. As the person interested in sickle cell, I started a clinic as a resident for sickle cell disease in the clinic, and and I started collecting and caring for peds as well as young adult patients. And as a resident, yeah, and with the um, some funds I got from the actually was in part from the March of Dimes, I um, uh, was able to hold some information together, working with a state counselor and things about sickle cell. Actually, I was criticized. I remember now I recently got uh, about my over um, my involvement as a resident in this because they felt it was over the top and uh, took away from what my training mission should be. Wow. So there must have been along the way, I mean, at, at University of Washington, there might there must have been people who you could turn to who, who were your sponsors or your mentors there. The University of Washington is a very um, was in a very academic program. You know, I must say that during my training, I pursued initially bone marrow and organ, but, and I was good at it. I love, I, I really can't identify with all people, you know, in their story. I, I have always found being a physician is such an honor to have people trust you um, and talk to you. I never found seeing, and especially chronically ill people, um, I, irregardless, I, 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 thought I got a great deal of gratification of, and frankly, even now, if I just cover the day hospital or see a healthy patient, I, I just love interacting with families. You know, I don't think people realize the rewards you get from, inter, from having a family trust you and spending time with you. It's a, really a privilege. Or it, it is really, uh, yeah. I think that's more special than anything else in medicine. And I agree. I've always thought that's the best part of being that pediatric hematologist is that long relationship with people. I, it is really moving. This is a separate part of that, but I might as well tell you now you get it. You know, so I, I've been in a position because I've been around for a long time. I set up the really the newborn screening program for the state and then the alpha thal screening program. So, and I've been following patients. I have an adult pediatric program. So and I've been following patients for you know, a long time, you know, growing, watching them grow up. And I was asked recently to be the, sort of the step in father for a young lady who was getting married, uh, probably 30. She had a lot of problems, a wonderful woman. I proceeded over the, uh, you know, stood up as the far, you know, the father person. And I was so touched. And I hung out with family members and and uh, it was exciting time. For, it was a nice thing. I've done this a lot. But then many months later, she just died. And she, she died because many reasons. She wasn't the only one. But um, she largely, when sickle cell patients are moved into um, the suburbs, and they're out, for many reasons, they're expensive, and their access to care is shifted to other hospitals. Um, what, what has happened, not only with this, but others, well-meaning in you know community or other ass groups you know they see a patient come in with abdominal pain and an MRI or an imaging shows some you know nodes or something and they operate and it's nothing but sickle cell and then you die of ARDS without transfusion you know not long after uh, overseeing her funeral service so I, I've lived through both sides of those things and Anyway, so when you're talking about it relationships, I, I have had incredible, wonderful relationships. I had this um, family, you know, they sued me when I was a um, nice family, but they were a very strong uh, group of um, 
and against transfusion. Um, Jehovah's Witness. I like them. Their father was one of the more, well, they don't really have, uh, he was a serious leader in the community. And so this young, this young guy came in and he developed a cute chest and I, and he was, he was in really bad shape. And I immediately uh, exchanged them before everything else happened, a, a quarter or anything. He was on his way down and totally recovered. And it, it, this real suit upset me, but I said, well, I did the right thing. So I'm just telling you. So he came the next day, not next day, a week later, I'm going to my clinic who's on a schedule and there's the family. Yeah. And so I walk in the room. And I say, why are you here? Why? I thought you, you and your dad are suing me. Why, why do you want to see me? Oh, he says, Dr. V, you're the best doctor I've ever had. I, I love seeing you. They're not related. You know, I just, Hilarious. Wow. Yeah, wow. I had, I, that was really an interesting experience. And I've had a lot of interesting experiences. Like so, so speaking of those interesting experiences, I have one I want to ask you about. So you have a paper from 1980. And that paper is called Fetal Hemoglobin Production During Acute Erythroid Expansion. Observations. Yeah, that, so that adds to the story. Uh, I'll get to it. So as I was finishing during my residence, during my Hemon Fellowship, I increasingly understood after I was finishing that I really, sickle cell um, was really what my mission was in life. And uh, so I then... Uh, met with George Stanatoinopoulos, who was heading, a, who was a world-class leader, him and his wife, Thalia, who was his fellow, who was really the person running the lab and brain, the, um, to develop a career in fetal hemoglobin because I felt and translate that into human uh, treatment. And I thought, so I moved over and worked in the lab to do that, I had to start, part of their goal was I had to set up an adult hemocycle cell program. <laughs> anyway, so I got heavily involved in adult and peds, and I spent uh, well over a year in adult medicine and peds. And the goal was to study uh, fetal hemoglobin regulation in the human rather than in vitro. I really learned a tremendous amount from them, but I also learned some the ways the university um, uses sickle cell patients. But in that paper, my goal was to show that fetal hemoglobin can be environmentally elevated in people. And at the time, people didn't really accept that. They thought it was genetically determined. And, and so I, there wasn't an IRB. So I figured that I bled myself down from 50 to 24. Uh, and uh, it took my samples and measured uh, my rap serially and measured my changes in F reticulocytes and F cells over the next several days and documented a burst of fetal hemoglobin being induced by anemia. So you, you drew blood from yourself until you're, you, you took half of your blood out of your body. I dropped my blood volume in half. I got into the 20s, my hemoglobin. How fast did you do that? Three hours. Oh my goodness. I had people help me in a chair and, you know, within a facility and bled myself down. Did you keep the blood and put it back in or you just not? I didn't put it back in because every lab around wanted it to look at. And, you know, it, no, I didn't. And I felt, okay, actually, the big problem I had with that was I went running in the arboretum and uh, I, I got faint. That was really a bummer. But I did notice the change, and then that was very important to that group and, and the research. And then I did the same thing with uh, T, you know, erythroid, uh, TEC. And, but I finally got settled in the lab, and things were going, the adult program, the pediatric program. And my wife said to me, we're moving. And uh, I said, what? I finally am getting into the faculty, and things are, you know, I'm on this track, and everything's great, and George... Stan thought I was um, the link to the clinical world and I was making progress and in, within that small academic world. I moved everywhere for you. I moved from Boston to Arizona to blah, blah, blah. And you, you're, you have to move for me. And I already got a grant and uh, I had to make a decision about that. And uh, what, what am I going to do with my future? And this is Oakland. I already was in Oakland a year or two before I decided to move from my fellowship into George's lab. 
and turned down a position on the Burt Lubin in Oakland to go back to work with George. I just turned it down a year later. And actually they recruited uh, already, um, they, they recruited people um, to replace me. My wife said, well, I'm moving and it's up to you. And so I said, I'm coming. And I told George that, and he smiled with a big cigar in his mouth and, and a cigarette and with this kind of evil look on his face. And, you know, I like this because I saw the real, he said, you're never that good anyway, so goodbye. <laughs> and uh, we became very close friends over the next 40 years, really. I, he, I spoke to him before his death and I, gave, I went out and gave a speech during his uh, memorial and things like that. So that's led me to see Oakland. I knew Bert from um, Howard. You know, at the time there were no sickle cell programs and uh, the only place that really was an anchor for people interested in was at Howard University, which um, was where our meetings occurred and I bumped into him there. But at the same time, there was this movement in uh, brought about by um, the abuses of a sickle cell that were identified by Howard University and Scott that for decades, sickle cell patients were uh, basically ignored and studied and, and exploited and dying and not even having access to care. At, and, and it became quite evident, it was absorbed into the sickle cell movement. The sickle cell movement became part of the civil rights movement, a serious part that um, elevated to the level of this work to the Black Caucus in Congress. In Black Caucus of Congress with the work that Howard was doing and others that led to passing the Nixon bill. That, that started five years earlier, um, uh, this, the Sickle Cell Control Act. And the, the goal of that bill was to recognize decades of abuse of sickle cell and try to collect them by, in quotes, creating um, you know, centers of hope. This was a beautiful thing. I mean, it brought together the really science, clinical, passionate leaders of the field driven to um, overcome scientific and social injustice. It was a movement within the NIH medical and medical world that, and it, it, it became obvious in that the bill required that the sites have, uh, you know, basic science, clinical science, community engagement, uh, model care, and it required that your community groups function had to have a serious role and be part of your NIH score, not yes or no, but how good they, not just a piece of paper that sucked, but actually prove it. And this really created a working environment. And I believe the NIH never really wanted this. It was, it, they, they were so driven, but they really were interested in, in uh, investigator initiatives, not these collaborative groups. So over years, this, this, and you had to have 300 sickle cell anemia patients. And, but what happened over the next generations, and so um, when I was, I got to Oakland, uh, we got funded, there wasn't a place for me in the children so much. I built an adult, I started just doing adult sickle cell and built an adult center at another hospital in linkage with them and eventually integrated them all and, and took over the division. But I was doing just adult for over a year and a half there. Uh, but then I integrated the program. So, And how many patients did you guys roughly have in the Oakland area at that time? You know, when we built up the program, it must have been, I don't know, not you know, seven, eight hundred probably, you know, something like that. And we got a center that had satellites. Um, and that, well, that was a really, but the mission of the community, and that's where I met, you know, the leaders, uh, Hercules and, uh, you know, Marilyn Gaston and all those kind of people, you know, about Doris and, you know, and Charles Witten. And I had a lot, and because him and I then worked on the newborn, national newborn screening and James Bowman, who was a, a very well-known geneticist in Chicago, Chicago had a center and very serious and smart and, and has lived, lived through lifetime of racial discrimination. He said to me, 
I'm really opposed to newborn screening because they're going to use this in a genocidal way. And uh, I, 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 my naive cell said, that's not definitely not going to, you know, but he was very clear. I remember he did come up to me later and say, it's worked out better than I thought. And he, he you know, he was quite a important person. And, I, and, you know, I worked with Charles Whitten along that, and he made it very clear to me. And I loved, he wrote an article in 1974 that basically outlined, uh, you know, basically this is the story. You know, he's making a rounds on the hospital and going over things and the patient nods and says, yes, yes. And when the patient leaves the room, the patient then says to the housekeeper or something, what did he say? What should I do? You know, he taught me that a concerned community member who was interested in sickle cell disease and could be taught and engaged to make one hell of a bigger difference than a, a physician who really wasn't in pa passionate about the goal of the outcome and community groups could do good. And we had to learn how to rely on them more than we thought. And uh, I believe he was correct. And I took over running a council of training programs for the state. So I met these incredible people who were highly, lots of people who really were inspirational to me. And we remained funded from the first one to the last one, but over the cycles, the NIH really didn't like that mission. And so the next cycle, uh, the scoring of the community groups ended. So they, you, the cycle, you, you just had to show you had a community group. And then the next further cycle said that sickle cell patients didn't have to be within your center. They could be in some other place. And, you know, you could have a center, let's say, in Boston, but the patients could be in in, in Jackson in uh, Mississippi and further things like that happened that diluted those things out. So anyway, I left there and, and um, I learned to, those people changed my life, but those people disappeared or they as the center, as the social movement, which was the civil rights movement was um, manipulated as if sickle cell wasn't real anymore and the civil rights movement changed the media started playing on things. When I got to Seattle, they actually had, I don't know if you were around that yet, but that's when the periods of urea and cyanate came about. So cyanate was a drug that could alter oxygen affinity, like sort of like, not the same, but uh, GBT sorry, drug. Every newspaper said we cured sickle cell disease. The patients got neurologic damage, a lot. Them, but they wouldn't give up the drug, so they put them on phoresis machines to just expose the patients to the drug, and it didn't work. The media began playing out to the community that sickle cell was, you know, taken care of, and the, and the media started also playing out the negative aspects, and pain became uh, used actually against sickle cell, and so even in the community, it was the negative issues of pain were exploited to minimize, to maximize stereotyping and minimize care. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. One thing that uh, I remember is you, you told me that in the early 70s, you know, when Dr. Witten published his psychosocial implications of sickle cell disease, you told me you kept that on a clipboard, a clipboard that went with you everywhere. It was Dr. Witten's article, it was buried actually in the, if I recall, in the Archives of Maternal Medicine Journal. But I loved it. I loved not so, I loved what he was trying to say in it. It was really important because sickle cell care, to care, to make a difference. You have to think out of the box about how to sickle cells, that disease in which 
It's science is really important, but how you implement it and reach the community with what you have is more important. And, you know, so I, I felt that. He made me understand that from that article. And I didn't meet him at that point. It was a major change in my life. He hit that article was, and there were a few other people like that, um, but he, he was really an important person. Well, we, of course, feel very fortunate that we get to see his daughter, Dr. Wanda Sherney, at least once a week here. Well, I know Wanda. Wanda. Wanda's a great doctor and a great person. I, and uh, she's really um, carried on his legacy in even a bigger way. He, you, he was a, a tour de force to deal with. I got to tell you, you know, he, he didn't mix words. When I first met him on his panel, uh, newborn screening, and him and I were there, and James Bowman, and all these people. He, 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 uh, he, he you know, you, you didn't mess lightly with him. And I got into some real arguments, but he was, he was quite a strong-willed, uh, determined individual to get through what he saw was important. And 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 he did take me aside to, separately to try to have me understand why he felt the way he was. He was bigger than life kind of character. I personally would have found it difficult being his son. Let me tell you, you know, where he was because of those kind of people. Um, it's a shame, you know, uh, Detroit had a lot. They made a big difference in the world over the years in sickle cell disease. Well, let's talk a little bit more about um, how things built up in Oakland. Let me give you some history that I, that's important to me. The Black Panthers were big in Oakland. Next to Children's Hospital was a uh, university, uh, Merritt College at the time. That's where Barbie Seal and these others met. They were a bunch of college kids, and really just college kids, and looking and had a, a cognitive understanding from their perspective of how to improve things for the uh, Black community, believing that they had to, the Black community had to take a role in leadership given the way the world was treating people. So they set up that program that was misrepresented in large part and then changed. But basically at that time, they had a feed your community program, a preschool education program, lots of those programs. And one of them was their sickle cell screening program. So they set up the first uh, sickle cell screening program in California for sure, maybe otherwise in the seven, and um, they would offer testing to thousands of people and uh, and they're coming out of Merritt College and they actually had a doctor, Tobert Small is his name and um, he was their physician and I, I'm still in contact, I bump into him and uh, so sickle cell was important to them and they offered counseling and screening and uh, it was uh, unheard of. It was at the same basic time I was fighting with Seattle to try to do it. So the funny thing about that history, so when they children's, that building that Merritt College fell into disrepair, but was reclassified as a um, historical building. And so children's took it over. It was 150,000 square feet, a half a block, a block away. And I was involved in getting the back and building the civil labs. And we're tearing down the walls inside and making and there was on the wall, these under the wall, not on the wall, but only when you took off the outer laying of the wall was the sickle cell uh, news information and, and stuff from the Black Panthers on the wall. Wow. Wow. And, and yeah, it's, it was really kind of put you in touch with reality and, and they did do a lot of good things. And I, I think there was a, the militarization of the Black Panthers and then the overwhelming response to them trying to do that targeted with a federal program was decimating. But they clearly had a, a food program, an education program, and were committed to sickle cell disease. So that's the first history I ran into that issue in Oakland. And anyway, so I moved into Oakland and, and uh, it totally was embraced in sickle cell forever there and, and was able to build a program uh, and work through systems to deal with it. And, and frankly, uh, the truth of the matter was, and as you know, 
you know, the universities and the other facilities, they didn't really want to take care of sickle cell patients. The community, sickle cell community is written in New England Journal is the, I can't think of another disease that better represents the um, health disparity of, of healthcare. It is the ultimate in uh, underserved community that has died because of lack of care and um, the major lack of care and the deaths that I've noticed over many decades has largely been because of lack of access to care or actually, and families who feared going to the ER and being mislabeled. And so to, to run a sickle cell center successfully, you had to delve into research and, and science and you, had, you could not ignore the discrimination that was not even, oh, the health system and your friends did not even recognize they had every day. And, and, it, and, and it hasn't gone and it still continues. You know, I just had, so as the sickle cell families moved to the suburbs because of price, I, I, I had this show and I went out to one of the communities and I brought eight uh, young adults and Marsha came and I asked at the table and asking each of them, they were, and I had this big audience of really nice people who were somehow, and what are the things you would like to see change? What's the most important thing? And one of the young ladies says, I just want to be able to go to the ER and not be seen as a narcotic addict when I walk in the door. Another woman I, I take care of, one of my first patients, uh, Wanda, she's head of the community group. She's, she, she says she gets dressed up, you know, has to really put on the outfit to go in. And the, the ER experience, I've learned a lot from that. And so I, I, I have had to be ad, an advocate on that level because so many people within the institution who consider themselves good people allow or won't recognize the issues and uh, that continue. So I, I've had to fight over those things and continuously have a political agenda and unite with the community to sustain the programs and, and work together. Now I'm in the point where I have, I'm learning from the people I learned from, but I go to the pharmacy and uh, I have my own health issues and I see my patients who are 40 and what they look like and uh, the lack of care that, you know, basically I'm providing adult care, but really the society as a whole and the unappreciation, you know, I actually think all these patients who had brain injury and stroke, if they didn't have, if the disease wasn't called sickle cell, they would get a hell of a lot better care, but it's, it's a painful thing to watch. And um, I'm proactive in that world, very proactive in the adult world, you know. Another one interesting experience. So I had one of my patients recently, I came in to see him, a young adult, and, and I don't know if you got a chance to see the NPR special they did on sickle cell. It was last Thanksgiving in November, um, and it was a two-day special. And it looked at patients in the general, and it looked at mine and others. And in there, I go into the room uh, to this guy and a uh, nice guy. I know him when he's a baby and you know, he's a tough young man now. And he takes off his shirt. And there, I, I still ha can't process this, but his whole back is covered with a tattoo that's, you know, basically Dr. Vichinsky, my hero. The responsibility I felt to live up to that was, was crushing. Then the privilege of it, but the ability to be the person he wanted me to be weighs heavily on me. So those are really important to me. And I'm, I'm engaged in that battle every day in the ER with, um, unfortunately, with attitudes that people have uh, about sickle cell people the, in the ER. And I have mobilized really good people who carry on and make a difference. If you could fix sickle cell, it will have a, a country-changing problem because they're integrated. How do you approach that? Because I think that's a problem we all deal with. I have come to realize that the few things are not going to be corrected in my lifetime totally. It's narcissistic and some ways self-serving to think that you, the mission uh, is only important in your own lifetime. And uh, it needs to be continued. And 
it, and you need to have people fight that and not give up. Uh, and it is changing, but I've come to that understanding. To do the right thing, I have to think. Be, I have to think beyond myself and where I'm in my own life, uh, and mobilize uh, the community to work in there and and listen. And, uh, and, and but I, I've accepted that. Uh, the, I, that is so true, and so that's how I see it. I, you know. Um, I'm still haunted. I give this lecture on the history of sickle cell. And I'm still haunted by the, uh, the background of sickle cell and um, issues like uh, the Nobel Prize laureate who really made sickle cell the molecular disease line is pulling, pulling. And then, you know, and his attempt and left unfettered was to, uh, he recommended that all carriers tattoo on their head uh, and this is in the papers so i show this slide of it it's just the history is just filled with those kind of things and uh, and what sickle cell had to go through my, when i first got into children's at the first day i into the children's like my first patient was a multi-stroked person in a gurney who really couldn't move and his he was thin. He looked like the old pictures you would think. This was before the transfusions even became standard. You know, I skinny and, and I, it was painful for me. And in comes his mother who's got sickle cell disease. She's 70 years, 68 years old and a um, postal worker. And she's dedicated to this young man. And uh, she was so happy to meet with me you know, and, and I did make some improvements in his joints and got him on transfusions, which weren't being done, and all those other things. And she's holding it together. She's in the 70, right? Still working because she has to be there for her son. And she tells me she grew up in Chicago and who this wonderful doctor she had who snuck her into the racially segregated hospital into the basement so she could get hydrated in things and oh, that how fortunate wow. to have him how fortunate she was to even get his care and and you know not in a political sense but in just a frank reality of what it was like then and um it, you know I, I i can't imagine uh what sickle cell people have gone through in those years and uh, over the time uh, and and even now i you know, one of the implementation studies I have is to try to uh, change the ER approach and uh, correct the waiting time. But I probably would have been thrown out as a young adult from the hospital, being a male and what the men go through and uh, those kind of issues. So you've had a really big impact on so many people in the field and you built such an amazing team in Oakland. I just wanted to Talk to you a little bit about that. T tell us a little bit about the team that you built in Oakland. And I think the people on my team were people who could identify with the heart, the mission of making a difference in the world beyond the technical aspects. And so I attracted people who went similar to me and probably smarter, but identified with the uh, moral anchor of, of, of medicine. And I give this lecture in the, for the, uh, at the medical school and, you know, you're already in a system that diverts the patients from you and you're part of that bias system. And then they get in and you in your own goals are identifying with what diseases and things and the whole system set up to undermine sickle cell care and the physician so the person, I think people who can see above that and understand that um, can be drawn into the, the real mission of a doctor, at least my view of it is, uh, you sort of like, um, you know, I, I feel that way. I feel that's where the best strength I've gotten is incorporating medicine into um, moral and social justice. So it's not me, it's I've attracted people like that who have and they're avid, they're avid learners to do the right thing. And, and uh, for me, the problem is protecting them um, from a system that uh, uh, doesn't want them to do that as much and from the burnout of inability to mobilize the resources they need. You know, survival, 
you know, in my clinic, I have full-time people just getting food and housing to take care of the adults, you know, let alone the undertreatment and abuses they have, just the survival needs of the population. And then now that they don't live and transportation and things that are just not, uh, the institutions don't recognize how much, but these are people who identify with these things. And uh, that's where the people have come from in my, in the community. They have a similar, uh, uh, I think, um, view of medicine and healthcare and where they want to be. I, I just represented a door that could provide an, hopefully an environment for them to do that. And they've made a lot of sacrifices and they have generated great science. And even the basic scientists, you know, it's been, um, I, the community has, the sickle community at least, can, at least where I am and have been, has not seen that difference. And, and they have worked very well together. It's, it's awe inspiring, you know, watching people Marsha Treadwell and many others who have um, done that. Talking about your career, we've touched very little on science. Uh, science. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about the the when you nearly bled yourself to death for an experiment. But I'll tell you a few science projects that were good. I liked. So I did a study. You know, they I really couldn't get newborn screening in the state off the ground, though. In the mid 80s, I did a study that half of the hospitals in the West Bay did not do it. And in the East Bay, I set up and provided the services for newborn screening and uh, I mean, not cord blood testing. And then this was published as the lead article in pediatrics. I think it was 1989 or 1990, something like that. And I, I actually probably would have gotten in the New England Journal, but I want they wanted it right away, and I felt it was important to get it out. And, and it was kind of it was fascinating. So, you know, I set up the systems and uh, provided the same counseling and other services. Kids who got identified in the newborn period, um, uh, basically there were eleven deaths in the non-newborn identified, and like. Uh, and one in the others, and many of the deaths actually occurred at the time of diagnosis at that time, and because they didn't, and they came in septic, and it was, it, it changed, that paper, which was a difficult trial, that paper led in my partnership with the state, uh, which I was very involved in to kick off the newborn screening program for the state, and was a universal screening program. That was an important change. The whole state 800,000 births started being screened for sickle cell disease. I think that's a big a, achievement. And opening up, not necessarily the result itself, but I, pulling together hundreds of uh, people to do the pre-op transfusion and the acute chest study. So no one knew how to transfuse sickle cell patients. And I, so I built this huge group together and they all didn't agree on how to do it, but they agreed to work together. So we enrolled 1,100 patients. And, you know, I had, um, th the beauty of that was there wasn't any funding at the real funding for clinical trials. Or these people did it out of um, commitment. And at the same place, Chapel Hill and, and Wendell, um, who was at Duke, who was a world leader said, you have to exchange and treat everybody. I'm not gonna participate if no one else does. And Chapel Hill said, uh, um, we don't transfuse anybody and we're not, these are the same center, but somehow I was able to get everyone to participate. And the study did show a lot. It showed, you know, and it, uh, a lot of outcome measures about death from surgery and transfusion, but also out, uh, it demonstrated um, alloimmunization and really how you can prevent deaths and when they occur and it did change the field, but what it really did was open up the door to multi-center trials and, um, and people working together for a mission. And I think the acute chest study was probably the most gratifying in that today I would never be able to pull that off without them. So basically all the acute chest patients uh, had to be following a protocol with blood gas and exchange or not. And then they were bronc to see if they had um, embolism and, uh, and, and the forms were incredible and they all did it. And it really showed, D and we had, we DNA tested everybody. 
uh, for the viruses and and uh, and we looked at fat embolism and co-concomitant, but we actually established treatment protocols that really changed the acute chest and defined it. That was very, very gratifying because um, we did make a difference in the management of acute chest, but the biggest accomplishment there too was getting everyone together. And, um, and uh, I really, really, the nurse practitioners were the drop, were, really important from that. I talked about that surgery study today. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, much, it's amazing that um, only recently that was tried, they, I, um, that, you know, they, England tried to do that with no transfusions in a healthier group. And the, it was, a, you know, by Sally and she, the study was stopped, you know, in six months because so many patients got acute chest syndrome in the non-transfusion arm. And I was able to show, which was probably the only time since I set up the protocol there uh, in transfusions and I published, um, it showed that the alloimmunization rate in that group was dramatically lower once they followed um, a protocol that gave CE-Cal negative units up front. And that was related to the I published this paper in the New England Journal, and probably it was 1990, I think, or 1985. That was really a seminal opportunity for me because so many kids were alloimmunized. And, and so I was able to work out with the blood bank, actually get the blood bank unit, determine its phenotype and who the donor was, black, white, or ever, and correlate that with the phenotype and of the patient, which no one has ever did on an individual patient basis. You know, it was collectively done. So I knew the phenotype of the patient and I knew, you know, their ethnicity and how many units they got. And I knew the ethnicity of the donor, which I, which it would be really hard to get now. And I knew their detailed phenotype. So. I was able to analyze a large number of units and reactions and determine that the driving force of the alloimmunization was the difference in the um, phenotype of those of common antigens. And that the, while the paper was played up, actually, I was hung out to dry in the National Choir, actually, because I mentioned the paper said that um, the bloods were racially identified. And it, it was done in a way to try to get the African-American community to donate because the frequency of finding patients matched with those antigens was higher as it would be in any community. But what happened was 95% of the donors to sickle cell were Caucasian and they did not, they were frequencies of their antigens were very different. So they did not do matching, but they were always giving, you know, to C negative, E negative, Cal negative, sickle cell patients, C positive, C uh, Cal and E positive units because of the differences. So that, that, that really, I thought was really quite an undertaking. I was hung out to dry on that trial by the blood bank community. And at the national meeting, I gave this paper I couldn't, you know, because of the finances around it, I, I, I think I've been under attack since that paper, since it came out. Come around, though. We all do that now. No, we, we all do it, but every blood bank study tries to, not everyone, it's changed, but they, they're, they're business people, so they have to buy the antigen. Every time you get a unit, you pay 50 bucks for the next antigen you know, basically that rough idea. So you have to pay to get CE-Cal matched in theory. It may not be that way. So they didn't do that. There was a strong opposition, but it changed. And I do think everyone does that now. And it, and it may, and I think that really has improved um, uh, the outcome for sickle cell people. I thought that was um, a really positive um, um, study that I did. I mean, I, I was going through PubMed. I saw like 350 papers, newborn screening, fetal hemoglobin induction with sodium butyrate and hydroxyurea in early childhood. Yeah, you know, I did a number of those trials, the butyrate trials, and 
and lots of nutrition stuff, vitamin E, vitamin C, iron, chelation, zinc, L-glutamine. That was a groundbreaking undertaking. So sickle cell patients were being transfused forever because people didn't have any therapy, but the medical community didn't care about the iron overload. They cared, but the acute management overwhelmed them to worry about iron. So and I, I, I pulled together a think tank in 1989, 1990, and an issue came out called the Seminars of Hematology, Iron and Sickle Cell. And at the meeting with Samir Ballas and a whole bunch of the old cronies and iron people. And, uh, and then I got, um, and we recognized, and Nancy Oliveri, we, we had some data about serial liver biopsies in sickle cell patients and fibrosis developing and, and a lot of other information. So it, it led to a large NIH grant I got that engaged a thousand patients and also thalassemia and controls. And we looked over time and we compared sickle to thal to the normals for the development of iron overload. And, and what we observed in that study, the MISIO trial, it was really, we found that sickle cell patients were heavily iron overload. And we identified why, but their organ, but they, the distribution and their morbidity was different than, it appeared different than the thalassemia people did. The frequency of endocrinopathies, heart failure, and all these other growth failure problems that were observed in the thalassemia population were largely different in the sickle cell. They didn't seem to get that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and it was intriguing, but, but they did get iron overloaded. And what they were getting as end organ failure was liver failure. But they, uh, but they and we published this, but the frequency of panendocrine failure uh, was much lower. And um, it, people took me apart in part because the, the timing and the aging, but it, the data was true. And um, you can't copy one disease immediately into the other. So it, that was misrepresented, that data. It did not say sickle cell people don't get problems. It's that you have to study the iron overload and how it damages sickle cell may not be the same as it is in thal, in part because of the inflammation and other organ damage. So we now know that they they clearly get problems and they get liver failure really high and, and the endocrine issues are different, but um, it's not good for you. It is important to remember that sickle cell, are, are, they're not just a copy of another disease. You have to look at sickle cell biology and the external um, injury you put into them that creates that. And I'll tell you one other story that I think is probably politically problematic. So I was involved in a large study. I did the first trial of an iron chelator, a randomized in sickle cell when uh, I came out to see if um, it was safe. You know, this was when XJ came out, if you recall. Not that long ago, 10 years ago, maybe. Was the first iron chelator orally available. And so I was, I ran the trial as the PI for sickle cell patients. And this was being done in other parts of the world, and they were focusing in Europe, particularly in thalassemia, and they were looking to get FDA approval. I'm breaking my, I'm really working hard to enroll patients because, you know, it's difficult. They, iron wasn't seen as a huge problem, but I did. I worked hard on the question. It was important. And I got, let's say I was supposed to get 200. I got to 170 patients and I got called. Um, by one of the study offices going on at the time who said, you know, we're going to stop the sickle cell trial. And I said, why? And they said, well, we have enough data from the thal trial. And uh, if we stop the sickle trial, um, if something happens in sickle cell, which we know they have renal, it could undermine uh, the FDA's approval of our study. And I said, that is really unethical. You know, you can't, sickle cell has renal disease and all these other things. You can't stop that trial. And that would be a, a moral um, um, dilemma. I was very upset about that. Uh, and uh, being the kind of reactive person I am, 
I uh, immediately met with the um, leadership at the corporate and other leadership in that and and then and changed that the next day. But I think if I wasn't the uh, problem person I am, if uh, an event happened in sickle cell, the FDA could have been affected, but they sickle cell could have then been given the drug of an off label and its renal problems not um, understood. And it turned out the study was a great success and they had they actually had less toxicity and then the Thales trial did, but and it was part of their FDA acceptance, but the, the pulling out, that was a really, um, that's one of the examples what happens that you have, there's a pivotal point in each person that they have to do the right thing. And so that really was, I was able to make that study finish and they were thankful that I did, but it was a enormous all night undertaking. And I remember it today um, of the people I cared about who were part of that trial who really didn't want me to go and create that. I would have, I would have publicly revealed they did that to the community if it happened. Well, Dr. Vachinsky, I, uh, so I hope I helped you. Oh my goodness. Oh, it was fantastic. Thank you so uh, much. This was, this was wonderful. And we would love to have you back. Cause I think we just scratched the surface. I mean, we haven't even, yeah, this is just, uh, you're right. We haven't scratched the surface and, and thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do. There are many other, I, I must tell you this. I appreciate you interviewing me, but there are many, many more people who've made major changes in sickle cell beyond me. And uh, many of them are unrecognized. So uh, I, I appreciate this opportunity, but I have not, there are many people who've done a lot more and, uh, and, my studies and other things would never have happened without them. So I, I don't want to be singled out in the context of that. There's a team of people who, who didn't, who basically did, did the work I wanted to do would have never happened. Nurses, Anna Earls, others, who were hacking, who, who really drove those trials and work. So I, I don't, it's really important. My last comment is physicians like myself and others should not um, let any success you have go to your head. You know, it, it's really built by others as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Vichinsky. Stay well, stay safe. All right. Thank you for being on. Okay. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. Well, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell on Twitter and Instagram. And follow Dr. C at Himagineer. We will catch you guys on uh, the next episode of Cheat Codes of Sickle Cell Podcast. Uh, keep crushing it. Live well with sickle cell. Stay safe. Keep your masks on. And uh, we'll see you in a few. See you soon. Peace. Peace.